Welcome everyone. This is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And today we have the privilege of talking with Gabe Brown, who's written a new book, Dirt to Soil, that you'll really enjoy. Uh, you uh, may recognize Gabe from a previous interview when I visited him in his farm in near Bismarck, North Dakota. Uh, and that was last year ago. I remember that very well. It was like two days be after my mom had just passed and uh, it was actually on my birthday. So it was a number of events uh, connected, but I really enjoyed the visit there. And his book uh, really expands on some of the information we went on uh, in the last interview. So welcome and thank you for joining us, Gabe. Thank you, Dr. McCullough. Pleasure to see you again. Yes, indeed. And uh, the opportunity is, uh, was out at your farm. I visited not only you, but your family and Paul, who is the next generation, your son, that's taking it over. And we'll talk a little bit about that. Um, so you've got a 5,000 acre ranch out there and your wife, Shelly, that you farm with, that you purchased. You have an interesting story. So why don't you give us a brief summary? I think we reviewed a little bit on last time, but it's uh, a really, you're an inspiration. You're such a leader in this field. You are the leader, one of the major leaders in regenerative agriculture in the United States and helping farmers understand how to do it the right way. And there's such a desperate need for this knowledge. And, and I really, we're going to dig deep in that. And I want to get an idea of your perspective, the percentage of farmers who don't understand this and, and the type of headway it's making. But before we get into that, if you're watching this, it's really important to understand that even though you may not be a farmer, I, I realize you have a deep appreciation and importance of it. But if you know someone who is farming, you've got to, you simply must get them into Gabe's work. He teaches all over the country, all over the world. Uh, I think he's home more than he's at his farm teaching, but uh, this information he has is really life-changing. It's going to be essential to continuing the transformation of back to healthy regenerative soil. So welcome and thank you for joining us, Gabe. And uh, why don't you give this a brief summary that I um, tangented from? <laughs> well, thank you, Dr. McCola. It's a pleasure to be with you. So briefly, a little bit of history. Uh, this ranch that my wife and I and son operate now was founded by my in-laws back in 1956. And they farmed it in the conventional type model with tillage and all the synthetic fertilizers and herbicides and monocultures from 1956 until 1991 when my wife and I purchased it from them. And then what happened is, I. I grew up in town, so agriculture was new to me. I learned, I uh, got a couple of degrees from North Dakota State University in animal science and ag economics. So I learned the industrialized, commoditized production model. And my father-in-law, when we returned to the place here, he taught me those principles. Well, then what happened, it, it never made sense to me. It didn't make sense why in a dry environment we'd be tilling the soil and would watch the topsoil blow away. And so. I was always one, I, I couldn't learn enough. So I studied and I read uh, Alan Savory's work on holistic plant grazing and I read about no-till. And so I went down the path of, of changing our grazing model and, and I bought a no-till drill. But what really changed our lives were four years, 1995 through 98, when we lost three crops to devastating hailstorms and one crop to a drought. So we went four years of basically no cash grain income or no crops to harvest. And that put us in pretty dire financial straits. The bank wouldn't loan us any money anymore to buy all these expensive inputs. And so I had to learn how do I take that dirt that I had at that time and make it into productive soil. So it set me on a 25 plus year journey and I'm still on that journey of converting dirt to soil. And that's how the book came about and that got us to the point we are today where a group of us spend the majority of our our time traveling around North America trying to teach other producers to take their operations into their own hands and make a difference by producing truly nutrient-dense foods. Yes, and your story, which you, thank you for the brief summary, exactly what I was looking for, uh, and reminds me to share with our audience that you are an amazing example. Most normal human beings would have quit after the first, or certainly the second disaster that you yeah. had, but you went on after the third and continued after the fourth. 
I mean, yeah. it's just normal human beings don't do that. So I guess it's your strong faith that that uh, facilitated that process and and uh, you know to continue in the face of all these disasters that you had, would have which essentially would have ruined most families. That's right. You know, the ironic thing is, of all my neighbors in close proximity, uh, several of them had those devastations two years, and one neighbor was hit three years uh, with the result of those natural disasters. But we were the only ones who got hit all four years. And I really think God purposely led me down this path and said, okay, you I'm showing you this to force you into a different type of production model. And that's the model of regenerative agriculture. And I tell people those four years were the hardest thing we ever could have gone through, but it was absolutely the best thing that could have happened to me because I never would have went down this path, my family and I, if we had not been a subject to those natural disasters. Yeah, it's an amazing example of a, a philosophy that I really live my life by, which is pronoia or being an inverse paranoid, and in that it's inevitable. Every single one of us is going to go through catastrophes. There is no way getting out of this life alive or out of this yeah. life without going through them. So the perspective is to have the viewpoint that it's always some good coming out of it, and you have a tremendous example of that good manifesting, and there's no way you would have actually chosen to go down that path, but the benefits were tremendous and changed your life. Right. That's right. You know, uh, while we were going down this path, I met a lot of individuals that, uh, that taught me different things on regenerative agriculture and how soil functions. But I was attending a conference in 1997, and there was a rancher from Alberta, Canada there. His name is Don Campbell. And he said this to me, and it stuck with me ever since. He said, if you want to make small changes, change the way you do things. But if you want to make major changes, change the way you see things. And after hearing that, I heard him right after our third year of natural disasters. And I realized I have to change the way I look at our soils. You know, it's not just dirt. It truly is a living, functioning ecosystem. And the problem is that most producers do not treat it as such. And if I learned if I would just focus on what does the soil need in order to thrive and in order to, to make all those nutrients available to the plants, I could truly produce nutrient-dense food. Yes, indeed. So the, the title of your book is uh, Dirt to Soil. And I read another book, which I, I don't know if you've uh, encountered before. It's called Dirt, The Erosion of Civilization by David Montgomery. Uh, and if you, are you familiar with that book? Uh, as a matter of fact, David and his wife, Anne, were just on my ranch 10 days ago. Oh. <laughs> I'm very familiar about it. And then David spent 10 days on the ranch with me when he wrote his book, Growing a Revolution. And oh, so uh, David and I are uh, good friends. And as a matter of fact, him and Anne were here because they're starting another book that's going to deal with uh, nutrient density in foods. and they asked me to collaborate a bit with them on that well, one. You'll have to uh, connect me with them because I definitely want to interview him for that book. I so the, um, the reason I bring that book up is he does a really nice job of outlining the disasters that we've had historically. It's not just in the 21st century. And, and I, in, in his book, and his figures are probably more current i mean they're they're data but there's millions of tons of soil topsoil that eroded every year every year into the mississippi basin and that sounds like a lot but it's like billions of or four billion tons of soil are lost annually around the world every year i mean that's just crazy this is it's what such a precious resource and so we've been doing this for ages and in europe they would farm the, the land use all the resources and then move on. That's the historical right. precedent. There's very few cultures that really understood this regenerative agriculture principles. In the United States is certainly not one of them, but you're leading the transition away from that. So why don't you, if you could expand on that would be great. Well, you're exactly right. You know, uh, Dr. Montgomery, the subtitle of the book is The Rise and Fall of Civilizations. And it's how all the great civilizations in the world have risen and then fallen based on how they treat their soil. And 
when my partners and I go around and teach regenerative agriculture, one of the quotes that we use is one of how on the eastern seaboard, the soil was being depleted, so a westward expansion needed to be made. And the gentleman who gave that quote was none other than George Washington. So way back, <laughs> our first president was telling the citizens of the newly formed country, we have to move westward because we've depleted the soil. Another interesting analogy that I like to give that puts it into perspective for all people is, if you hold up a sheet of paper, just mm -hmm. a newspaper or a book, the thickness of that sh thin sheet of paper is the equivalent of one ton of topsoil per acre. So if we have a windy day, it's very easy if you have bare tilled soil, you're gonna lose a ton of so topsoil on an acre of land. Well, mm -hmm. that's just unacceptable. And another thing we talk about a lot is how, look in the 1930s, we see all these visions of the great dust bowls. But here we are in 2018, and there is the same thing happening. We were recently teaching a school in Oklahoma and they had to close the interstate in Oklahoma because of so much soil blowing that it uh, uh, caused reduced visibility. You know, there was deaths in Nebraska this spring from blowing soil. Colorado, we're seeing it all over. And so what we're trying to uh, enable all people to see is the fact that we can stop and it's just a matter of following nature's principles. Let's work with nature to cover the soil, to have, to have green growing plants, to cycle that carbon out of the atmosphere and put it back in the soil in that cycle where it belongs. And it'll be for the better, betterment of all societies and yes, all indeed. ecosystems. Sure. And the, I, I'd like to get your take on the prevalence of this uh, the farmers who are really not listening to you or others like you and, and integrating this and violating the one of their first primary rules is never have bare, or virtually never have bare soil. You've always got to have something in the ground. And if something's in the ground, you're not going to have a ton of topsoil blowing away on a windy day, which they wouldn't have had in Nebraska and Colorado that you described. So what percentage of farms are you seeing on a national basis that are making the transition? Is it, is it like 75% are not doing it or you know, where are we at? <laughs> Unfortunately, Dr. McCullough, uh, as hard as many people are working to change things, we need to be honest, it's less than 5% of the farmers and ranchers worldwide are adopting these practices. In saying that, there's a, the snowball is starting to move downhill and there's more and more inquiries every day. Uh, those of us who are out touting the benefits of regenerative agriculture are overwhelmed with producers who want to make a change. You know, right now there's a real crisis going on in rural America. Um, Suicide rates are at an all-time high among farmers and ranchers. Uh, I've talked to several lenders and uh, uh, um, CPAs, and, and financially, farmers and ranchers are really strapped. It's due to low commodity prices and an overproduction, a number of things, which all show us that the current production model is not working. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, I just read an interest, interesting quote on a flight home yesterday, and it it said, uh, it was by Wendell Berry, and he was talking about the current production model of industrialized ag, commoditized, uh, high inputs, is to capitalism, is gonna do the same thing to capitalism that it did to socialism. Mm -hmm. And when you really think about it, that, that's kind of the path we're on. We're in this production model where it's just produced, it's all about pounds and yield, and it's not about producing truly nutrient-dense foods in a way that can regenerate our ecosystem. And we have to change this model. Yes. And part of the change to help address the suicides that are occurring, not only in the United States, but it's really pervasive in India, too. It's a leading cause of death over there because of the, the, and the agricultural element. But <clears throat> part of the change is... Uh, shifting their mindset 
from a conventional approach to more of an entrepreneurial approach, which is what you've done. I mean, you've really integrated it. And, and there's an absolute market for that. And pretty much everyone watching this is part of your market who wants nutrient-dense, healthy food free of contamination. So that, people want That's it. right. It's probably the majority of the population who understands and wants it. So the market is huge. It's just a matter of educating those farmers of how to do this. And that's what you're in the process of doing. Because if you just farm the conventional way, even with regenerative techniques, you still have to make that additional jump of providing it in an entrepreneurial fashion so that you can actually be successful and continue the enterprise. That's exactly right. One of the things, thanks to my son, Paul, that we've been able to uh, concentrate on on our operation is how do we not only produce and grow and raise those nutrient-dense products, but how do we offer them to consumers? And what we've decided to do is to market as much as possible of what we produce directly to the consumer. And then we let the consumers be the judge. One of the things we do on our operation, we have an open door policy, meaning any person can drive on our ranch at any time and look at anything they want. And to me, that's the best. You know, you can have all these labels and standards, but if people see it with their own eyes, if they get to know the farmer or rancher and see what we do, see how we care for our animals, see how we care for the soil, that builds trust. And once they taste the product and their bodies will be satiated, their bodies will know this is good. This is nutrient dense. I want it. Then they're they're a customer for life. Yeah, that's a great model. And hopefully uh, many of the people that you're lecturing to are starting to adopt this because we so desperately need these local resources that people can get food in their community that is healthy mm -hmm. and free from toxins. So ma major component. Now, one of the I mean, we'll talk about the, the other principles that you have, but <clears throat> one of the values or benefits of that is that it will allow the, the soil to retain more moisture. And when I was there at your farm last year, I think you had less than an inch, and that was in July, the middle of July, or the beginning of July, and I think you had less than an inch of rain that year. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Hopefully it's it, a little we, better we, this year. We, we ended up last year with 5.6 inches of rainfall wow. for the entire year. Now, we did have a bit of snow last winter with added. We started out real dry this spring, but fortunately, the last couple of weeks, we've, we've caught some rain, a couple inches of rain, which has certainly helped matters. But the thing of it is, if we focus on growing plants, and, and my business partner, Ray Archuleta, always says, plant and soil are one. We have mm -hmm. to have healthy plants in order to have healthy soil. And we have to have healthy soil in order to have healthy plants. And so if we focus on that, the soil as an ecosystem, we're gonna tremendously increase the water holding capacity of the soil. And this is good not only for farmers and ranchers, but also for gardeners and homeowners. You know, if they focus on the healthy soil, we'll find we need much, much less moisture to produce crops and forage for livestock, et cetera. And so it's all an ecosystem working in tangent, working together, but we have to concentrate on what that soil needs first. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So maybe you can expand on the other principles because uh, once those are applied, and they're just general principles, whether you can use in your garden or your community garden or on a large farm, like the 5,000 acre operation that you have, and, and certainly larger operations can use it. Yeah. and. Uh, there's five principles of a healthy soil ecosystem. And no matter where I travel all over the world, these principles are the same. Now, the tools used, you know, the, the type of equipment, the type of livestock, the varieties of crops are different, but the principles are the same. And those five principles are simply this, least amount of mechanical or chemical disturbance possible. We don't want to be tilling the soil any more than we have to. We don't want to be, certainly don't want to be adding all these synthetics, fertilizers and pesticides and herbicides and fungicides. So we need to keep that to a bare minimum, if at all. And that's the first principle. Second well, principle. Let, let's stop at the first, okay? because that is in direct contradiction, at least from my understanding, to what's been taught as rock solid 
basic information for the last century or two. Is that is that right? Yeah, well, look, we've been tilling the soil for centuries. And mm-hmm. David Montgomery in his book, Dirt, shows that the more we till, the faster the soil degrades and is destroyed. And that's why people had to move. That caused the collapse of those civilizations. Now, from a, a synthetic input stand, uh, standpoint, you know, it was after World War II, when they had all these factories that were making bombs, what were they going to do with all the nitrogen? Well, let's put it on the soil. Well, what we're finding, what really happened was uh, by adding synthetic nitrogen to the soil, that biology then, because everything has a carbon to nitrogen ratio, starts consuming the carbon in the, in the soil aggregate, and it starts destroying soil structure, no soil structure, no water infiltration, no water holding capacity. So you're exactly right. It's directly antagonistic to what we what is needed in a healthy soil ecosystem. Okay, good. So no till. And the, and the, I think that was one of the strategies that you use, and I guess you encourage other farmers to do too, is to sell your equipment so you can't till. <laughs> you can't go back. It's like burning the ships, you know? Yeah, that, that's right. Back when I went down this path, uh, uh, the only way I could afford to buy the no-till drill, I had to sell my tillage equipment. But then I was all committed. I was all in. I had to make it work. And I encourage other producers to do the same. And there are, especially here in the Great Plains, the upper Midwest, no-till is common. Probably 70 plus percent of the producers use no-till. But they haven't adopted the other practices that are needed to make that soil ecosystem healthy. Yeah, before you go into there, I want to emphasize a point. I mentioned at the beginning that you're in North Dakota. Uh, some people who don't know U.S. geography may not may think that's part of the Midwest, which had at one point the best, or some of the best soil in the entire world. But it really is a pretty <laughs> challenging environment to grow. <laughs> Probably one of the most challenging environments in the, in the United States. So the point being that if you can get these principles to work in Bismarck, North Dakota, they're going to work pretty much anywhere. Uh, that's right. And as a matter of fact, Dr. McCullough, last week, my my team and I were up in Manning, Alberta, which is, you know, it's six hours north of Edmonton. Mm. I mean, it's 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 up there. You almost think colder Arctic in the winter. It's yeah, <laughs> you almost think Arctic Circle. And they're using these same practices up there. Wow. So right. my point being, are they working? Are you getting feedback? Yes. From them? Yes, they are. We had a great group of producers up there who are really uh, uh, starting to move down the regenerative path. So uh, we're excited about that. But it doesn't matter where you're at. We've taught these principles in Australia and we've been in Mexico and and there's producers in South Africa and, and in Germany and Russia and all former Russia all over the world using these principles. They work mm-hmm. anywhere. Yeah. So I, I interrupted you. So the one is no-till. And then maybe yep. you can go into the armor yep. next, keeping this yep. covered at all times. Yeah, and this is one that that not only farmers and ranchers, but gardeners also need to pay attention to. You know, it, it, it just baffles me why when I visit my urban friends, they're always tilling up the garden. <laughs> urban friends. And, and it's like, my goodness, that's the worst thing that we can do is to till because what tillage does, it destroys soil aggregate, it destroys the mycorrhizal fungi, the home for all the biology, and it's that network that transfers nutrients. We're not going to have truly nutrient-dense food unless we stop the tillage, and then we have to have the armor or the skin on the soil surface. That skin, if you walk into a forest or into a, a prairie land, you, always, you don't see bare soil. You see that it's covered. And that armor protects the soil. You know, when it rains, uh, those raindrops fall very fast and they can erode that topsoil. When there's very windy days, that wind, as we discussed earlier, can blow those that topsoil away. And also that armor protects the soil from heating and cooling. And it, what it's there for is to create the optimum environment for biology so that that biology can live and thrive and produce the nutrients that are needed. 
Yeah, this is one of the principles that you kind of discovered by accident, I guess, in, in your four years of hardship and adversity, yes. because you couldn't harvest the crop, so you just let them stay on the yeah. soil, and you covered the soil. <laughs> That's right. When I look back at, at what uh, was really occurring, you know, it was a plan much greater than my own, because I wouldn't have been smart enough to leave that. But those hailstorms, they, they devastated the crop and put it all down on the soil surface where I had no way to, to mechanically remove it. But that was the best thing that could have happened because through no-till and then that armor, I was actually starting to grow topsoil. Yeah, yeah, which was a major transition from the, what the last 50 years, your, your, your uh, in-laws purchased the property in the 50s, right? So that, That's correct. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So going on from there, I guess the next step is armor would be maybe living roots because that's sort of an extension because if you've got living roots growing, you've got the armor. Yeah. We, we have to understand how uh, soil is formed and soil is formed from growing plants, taking in CO2 out of the atmosphere through photosynthesis. They produce all these amino acids and carbohydrates, and then they, they pump a part of that. Uh, what's sometimes referred to Dr. Christine Jones referred to, to it as liquid carbon is pumped out through the roots as root it exudates into the soil. And you might ask, well, why would the plant pump out part of what it produces into the soil? Well, the answer is to attract biology, which provide all the nutrients the plants need to grow. So we need a living root in the soil as long as possible throughout the year in order to feed that biology and cycle that carbon out of the atmosphere and that you know that's one of the reasons uh, we're having this problem we're seeing uh, globally today of too much carbon in the atmosphere we need mm -hmm. to get it we need to grow more plants all the time as long as possible in order and the plants will do it the plants will pull it out of the atmosphere and pump it into the soil where it can be cycled via biology yeah, so you've just met with david recently is he does he believe that the turning point has occurred and this reversal can actually happen in our lifetimes before it's uh, too late? You know, I have the good fortune of meeting with many, many scientists and yeah. others who are well-versed in this, this uh, problem we're seeing. And all of them now believe that the keys, well, I should say this, the majority of them now believe that the keys to mitigating the problems we're seeing are twofold. Number one, we need to change the current production model and have a living root in the ground as long as possible. And that uh, means diversity in living plants. The second thing is we have to have animal integration. We have to take the animals out of the feedlots and out of confinement where they don't belong and put them back out on the landscape. And you hear a lot of people saying, oh, cattle are causing uh, global warming and nothing could be further from the truth. And I, I give this analogy. Just imagine back what it must have been like centuries ago when we had the large herds of bison and elk moving, and they were all over North America moving. But what was really happening, those ruminants were taking a bite out of that forage, that grass and those forbs, and then that plant, in order to regrow, had to pump more carbon into the soil. See, if we remove the animals from the ecosystem, we can grow a plant and we can pump some into the soil, but not near as much as if we would have animals grazing. So that's the two keys, living plants, and then we have to integrate animals again. Well, it's my understanding that some people may argue uh, that cattle are part of the problem but more specifically it's conventionally raised cattle who are eating grains that they were never designed to eat and as a result changing the microbiome and eliminating methane which is a pretty pernicious uh way to destroy ozone and uh it takes so much more <clears throat> uh, food to raise them that way as opposed to raising them the way you are and other regenerative agriculture farmers so it's the model that they're being raised that's the problem and and then of course they're not recycling their nutrients back into the soil the way we're designed to and you don't have to when when the animals are grazing they're automatically putting their urine and their feces back into the soil not into some massive feedlot that that's exactly right and then also 
you never hear in this equation methanotrophs. Methanotrophs are organisms that feed on methane that livestock expel. So as an animal's out grazing, these methanotrophs take care of that methane. Well, oh. we don't have that in the feedlots and in no. confinement, there's not methanotrophs. And the other thing is look at fossil fuel usage to produce all of the grains and then you got to harvest the grains and then haul them to the feedlots or into, you know, it's not only beef cattle, it's also uh, hogs that are in confinement, it's poultry that's in confinement. And, you know, it's a tremendous fossil fuel usage that we can get away from if we switch to a more regenerative production model. Yeah, and you've got some really innovative ways to to uh, reduce that fuel usage even more the way you, uh, in your brutal winters, I mean, you have to feed the cows. And, you know, most people think that well, it's like impossible to raise a grass-fed cow in the winter, especially in North Dakota, but that's not, nothing could be further from the truth. And, you're, and, and you've, you've devised ways to put the food out there so you don't even have to haul it out every day. So why don't you talk about that? Because it's a pretty, yeah, pretty clever so trick you guys developed. One of the things that, that misconceptions many people have is that, oh, you can't do this everywhere. So we got to stay in the current production mm -hmm. model so we can get food everywhere. Nothing could be further from the truth. Animals are adaptive. They will adapt to the environment. Our cattle graze for the majority of the year. In fact, some winters we're able to literally graze through the whole year without mm. feeding any processed hay. Now, we do get some major blizzards here. And mm -hmm. at those times, what we've done is we're prepared. We, we do put up some forage in hay bales but we leave them out on the land where, where the, that forage was grown. And then our cattle graze on those bales at such time where they can't physically uh, graze grass. And so by leaving the, that hay bales out there, the cattle are grazing there. You know, they, they leave their manure there. The nutrients from the bale are left right there. And it's a process that keeps that land healthy. Also, the animals get exercise and I tell people, uh, many people say, oh, the animals are better off in a feedlot. I said, really? Just open the gate. <laughs> Those, they don't want to stand on their own feces all day and lay in it. They want to be out. That's what, you know, that's how they evolved over time. Yes, indeed. And, uh, it's interesting too, when they finish feeding on those bales of hay, uh, the, the, cause I've, I've seen in, in last July where those hay bales were, and then there's this massive new growth that it's like a fertilizer there that occurs and you get incredible yeah. growth when the bales are gone. And that's right. What's happening is it's carbon, you know, the animals feed there. So through the manure and through any parts of the hay bale that they don't eat is adding carbon to the ecosystem. Well, everything's comprised of carbon. We are, biology is, plants are, animals are, and carbon is the most limiting factor in production agriculture today. Well, because of that excess, extra carbon that was put there from the animals consuming that bale, now we have this tremendous flush of forage, and it's not uncommon to triple or quadruple the forage biomass production where that hay was. So, we're accelerating the regeneration of our ecosystems while allowing the animals to lead the kind of lifestyle that they would prefer to lead. Yeah. And, you know, what? one of the points I want to get back to is the microbial diversity that you refer to. And a really interesting statistic that you cite in your book, and it's not intuitively obvious, is that 95% of the life living on the land is in the soil it's not us it's not the rabbits and the squirrels or the insects it's in the soil that's right it's been said by several soil microbiologists that there's more microorganisms in a teaspoonful of healthy soil than there are people living on this world think about that so i i challenge farmers and ranchers and gardeners how many of you out there have thought about feeding the life in the soil. We think about feeding plants, we think about feeding humans, we think about feeding animals, but we don't think of all this biology in the soil. And 
that's one of the reasons I wrote the book was to just to get people thinking, how do I take dirt and convert it to soil, healthy soil that's teeming with life? And that leads into uh, one of the other principles, which is the principle of diversity. We mm -hmm. want many different species of plants, animals, insects, and especially soil life. You know, today's production model is all about monocultures. You know, you travel and all you see is corn and soybeans and, and spring wheat and cotton. You don't see these very diverse ecosystems that our native prairies once were. And you don't see all the animals and insects. And then, of course, many times with our naked eye, we can't see the, the microorganisms in the soil. But we need all those things to create a healthy ecosystem which in turn will give that plant the nutrients it needs to nourish our bodies. Yeah, so why don't you comment on the magnificent transition that occurred on your ranch after you've made this uh, movement towards regenerative agriculture with respect to the wildlife that was there and the diversity of the wildlife, which is just extraordinary. Yeah. And, yeah. And, it, and it really is quite in contrast to the wildlife present on your neighbor's properties. <laughs> well, that, that's, that's true. When I first moved here, my wife and I in 1983, after we graduated from college, we moved back here to be a part of this ranch. And I tell people I would never see a deer. I'd never see a pheasant. Rarely would I, would I see a grouse. You'd see a few songbirds, but very rarely. And I t talk in my book about how I never once did I see my father-in-law take a spade and put it in the soil to see what the soil looked like or check for earthworms. And over time, this transition, this path we've gone on now, I mean, I can sit on my French porch any evening and count 50 to 100 deer grazing. In the evening, we see pheasants and, and hawks and owls and, and grouse and partridge and a myriad of songbirds. and as a matter of fact, the Audubon Society was doing bird surveys on our land just here uh, a year ago, and they found nesting piping plover, which are a uh, endangered or they're listed species. And they said, well, that's impossible. The river's 10 miles away. They don't nest. There has to be a river for them to nest. Well, evidently not. We have them nesting on our property. So it's kind of the thing that if you build it, they will come. So these animals and insects and birds, they all know what's healthy and they know what they need if, as far as habitat and food to survive. And it's a wonderful uh, thing to be able to see all that life on one's farm or ranch. Yeah. And the, the downside is, because there's a downside for everything, but I, I think you related to me that the, the deer that you mentioned, <laughs> they don't feed on your neighbor's land. They come to your land to eat. They, they, <laughs> they want the nutrient-dense food. They don't want the, yeah. that model crop garbage. You know, it, it was interesting here uh, a few years ago, I had one field and it was 30 acres of corn. But it was non-GMO corn, open pollinated, no synthetics on it, no pesticides, because we just don't use any of that. My neighbor had 600 acres of corn right next to me. Well, every evening I would watch, and there was literally up to 75 deer every evening, they would walk out of his corn where they had bedded during the day, walked all the way over a half mile to my field, and that's where they would eat. If that doesn't tell you something, I don't know what does. Yours aren't stupid. You know, you, no. it's, it's hard to confuse an animal. That's uh, right. Now, and when the, those uh, 40 acres of corn you were growing, I think you grow other crops in there, too. It's not a monocrop, right? So you're putting, why don't you describe yes. that process? Because, you know, it's, it's, it's unusual, and uh, it's something that typically farmers don't do. Yeah. So the principle of diversity, you have to have diversity. And you look at how native ecosystems perform, they don't just have a grass plant, they always have legumes and forbs. So what are we doing in production agriculture today? I don't care if it's large scale industrial ag or our garden, we're planting just monoculture. Well, what I'll do with my corn, for instance, we will go in and we'll plant corn, but then along with the corn, there will be vetches and clovers and uh, uh, understory growing underneath that corn. So 
we're not only feeding the soil microorganisms from the root exudates of that corn plant, but also from all these legumes. And the legumes are helping take atmospheric nitrogen and provide it to the corn plant. So when the deer come to eat, they have, they have a smorgasbord of different species. And it, it really, people think, well, but those other plants are gonna compete with your corn crop. Nature doesn't work that way. Nature <laughs> is much more collaborative than competitive. That's how it is. So yeah. we do the same thing in our garden. We will have a row of sweet corn, but right next to it, we'll have a row of peas and on the other side, a row of beans. And so the row may be a monoculture crop, but growing together is all these different species and flowering species attracting all the pollinators and the predator insects. You know, we haven't used a pesticide on this, on our ranch in over 20 years. And the reason is there's no need to. We have the predator insects that keep the pests in balance. Yeah, yes, indeed. And uh, I forget the statistics, but it's like for every predator, well, for every pest insect, there's like six or 700 beneficial yeah. insects. It, yeah, it's actually 1,700. Oh, 1,700 okay. for everyone that's a pest. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. So I'd like to get your insights as an insider because you know, we just described this process where nature is collaborative, not competitive, but that doesn't exist with the humans. So you're an insider in the agriculture industry. And as I, I think in your book, you mentioned only three companies control over 75% of the agrochemical industry, and there's probably other monopolies. So why don't you summarize as an insider what the conventional farmer is up against if he decides to make the, the transition to regenerative agriculture. Yeah, and, and I often say the biggest hang-up or issue producers have in moving down the regenerative path, unfortunately, is USDA in the current farm program. Because mm -hmm. the current farm program offers what's called revenue insurance or crop insurance to farmers and it's highly subsidized by the the federal government now my ranch our family we chose to bow out of that we just don't take part in that i i i think it's ridiculous that nobody is subsidizing ma and pa's restaurant on main street you know <laughs> right if, if they don't get uh, uh clients showing up well why should i be subsidized if i can't make a living farming and ranching without these subsidies, I shouldn't be doing it. So, but the current production model, the vast majority, well over 95% of the farmers and ranchers in this country are getting those forms of subsidies, but there's strings attached. And those strings are, well, you have to produce in the current production model. You have to produce monocultures and it's focused totally on yield or pounds in the case of animals not on nutrient density. Mm -hmm. And we're not looking at what harm it may or may not be causing to the ecosystem. So the farmers can't go get a loan from the lending institution unless they take part in that program. Well, the program's going to dictate which crops will give them the greatest revenue insurance. In mm -hmm. other words, guarantee them a certain price. Well, what happens is the far farmers aren't stupid. They're going to gravitate to whichever crop, and it's corn, soybeans, cotton, spring wheat, that offer them the greatest return. And so what you have then is you have more and more farmers producing these same crops, driving the prices down even further, while at the same time degrading our soil resources. So it's this vortex farmers and ranchers are in. They're stuck on a hamster wheel going nowhere. And the whole point of my book, I just wanted to share, and it's just the story of our journey on what we did to get out of that trap, what we did to take control of our own destiny. And let's, let's instead of relying on the government to dictate these things, let's be a price maker instead of a price taker. And let's do it in a way that we can regenerate our resources so that future generations have the opportunity to be sustainable. Yeah. I get, Go ahead. Sorry. Well, I get really tired that the, the mantra lately from many people and many companies is sustainable, sustainable. We want to be sustainable. And I tell farmers and ranchers, why in the world would we want to sustain a degraded resource? 
that makes no sense to me. We can't afford to be sustainable. We have to be regenerative. And the five principles I share in this book are those that will empower people to be regenerative. Yeah, yes, indeed. So <clears throat> I'm quite familiar with the challenges that big pharma and really big food and now the telecommunications industry have on influencing uh, federal legislation and federal regulatory agencies. So, and, I, and I've come to the conclusion that it's virtually impossible to change those policies and you've got to go from the ground up and teach people other alternatives because these powerful industries have really controlled the federal government. Because I, I believe firmly that the federal government isn't good or bad. It's just a tool, like a gun isn't good or bad. It's just how you use it. And they're, and it's unfortunately it's controlled by these industries. So would you, is from your take, because I don't understand this industry like you do, is is that the same position we're in? Is, is there ever any hope of changing these USDA policies that incentivize the farmers to do this? Or you just got to get it from the ground up like we're doing with the other other strategies? Dr. McCullough, I agree with you 100%. I wrote a chapter in my book on what I see through my eyes mm -hmm. as the fallacies of the current production model. Mm -hmm. And I agree with you, we're not going to change that. The only way things are going to change are twofold. One, if, it's with, if the farmers or ranchers themselves decide to make a change. Because let's face it. Farmers go out there and they go to spray a chemical on a crop. They know that's not a good thing, but they're just in this model. How do they get out of it? Well, they have to want to change. And that's why myself and my partners at Soil Health Consultants have formed this Soil Health Academy where we travel around teaching these principles so people can take it, uh, control of their own destiny. The main way, though, that this model is going to change is if mm -hmm. the consumer demands it. And no one knows better than you the health problems that are occurring worldwide due to this industrialized, commoditized uh, production model, which is just producing empty calories. It's not producing nutrient-dense foods. And so my own family and my business partners have taken it upon ourselves to tout the things you're touting. We need nutrient-dense foods. How do we get nutrient-dense food? The only way is through healthy soil. We have to, so consumers through their buying dollar can vote and say, hey, I'm only going to spend my buying dollar at those farms and ranches that are producing nutrient-dense food. And when enough consumers are, when consumers are educated enough to, to spend their money that way, that will truly change production agriculture. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's no question about it, and it's been, you know, my professional training is in, as a physician, and any physician or healthcare professional who is serious about integrating natural health principles, in my mind, eventually, eventually has to come to the soil, whether they're gardening themselves or seeking out people who are using principles like you're teaching in regenerative agriculture to produce bio or nutrient-dense foods. I mean, it's just, that's the conclusion. It's the inevitable path that, that, that need, and if you haven't reached that yet, you're going to reach it if you continue in your journey. Yeah. I mean, it's just inevitable. So, uh, you know, that's one of our strategies is, you know, we realized early on, we can't change these federal policies. It's just, it's literally impossible. There's, well, nothing's impossible, but it's close to it. <laughs> so right. we have to go from the bound up, ground up, and then that's doable, and we are making changes. So yeah. I, I I'd like to get your insights um, and comment on the historical perspective, because we've got this history, many, many centuries, thousands of years, historically, where humans have been using foolish, and that's being kind, agricultural principles. And they've really ignored the regenerative principles. And I'm wondering uh, what your pers perspective and take on this is. This, and, and are there any cultures that stand out as being exemplary and understanding these principles and applying them? Well, one, one of the things that, two things come to my mind right away. Uh, first, uh, this path, this journey I went on, 
one of the things, you know, realize this was before internet was prevalent. So I was spending mm -hmm. time in the library trying to research, okay, how did they keep producing profitable crops in abundance without all these synthetic inputs? And I came across Thomas Jefferson's old journals, what he was doing on Monticello. Mm -hmm. And he was growing turnips and vetches and these different crops in order to help build the soil health up so he could keep producing uh, his, his cash crops. So I thought, well, if he can do it, so can I. So I started to apply those principles back in the mid 90s. The other place I found real interest was in what the Native Americans were doing. Mm -hmm. There there was a book written called Indian Bird Woman's Garden, and it, it was about a Native American and what she was planting along the Missouri River uh, centuries ago. And it was the three sisters, corn, bean, and squash, planted together. And that's the principle of diversity. And she was doing it in a way where she wasn't cultivating the garden. She was simply removing a little bit of that armor and putting the seeds in. And I thought, this isn't rocket science. This is just using those type of principles. So they are, there are these in, those indigenous people all over the world that have lived in the same ecosystem for centuries that were doing a good job. But the current industrial model and the mindset of man is we're trying to impose our will on nature. Well, that just isn't going to work. Nature will win every time. Yes, yes, indeed. So let's talk about the future. You mentioned earlier at the beginning that you believe about 5% of the farms are being regeneratively using regenerative agricultural, agricultural principles. And you've been teaching these for, what, 15 years now, these principles. And so you, you're out, out in the, the trenches uh, and you can, you know, with these farmers that are doing this. And I'm wondering uh, as to the your observation of the trend, is it in, is it like doubling every year? Do we have an exponential increase? And even though the numbers are small initially, if you continue at that rate, it's going to be big eventually. And what what are your projections as to when we think we might hit a tipping point? Yeah, I think right now it's less than five percent, but it has easily been doubling every year. That is that is exponential growth. That it is, is. Growth. Yes. it's exciting. And now uh, I will say I'm excited. Uh, our partnership of soil health consultants, we're being approached now by some of the big players. And I mean All the, right. the big players <laughs> in the food industry, big players in production agriculture, asking us, can we come and teach? either their employees or their producers these regenerative practices there's zero doubt in my mind we're going to that exponential growth is going to increase in fact we really think it's going to accelerate we can't wow. even begin to keep up right now with the number of requests that we're getting and uh i i don't feel uh, i'm not going to mention names right here but i will say that it is the big players in the food industry in the United States, they're taking note and they realize that their client, who is the consumer, mm -hmm. is telling them, mm -hmm. we want change, we want nutrient-dense food. And they know the only way they're gonna get it is through healthy soil. Now, I'm just gonna make a prediction and mm -hmm. I talk about the principle of diversity and how, how people are, have been growing monoculture cash crops. We're seeing some very exciting things occurring right now with what's called polyculture cash crops. Mm -hmm. So a farmer would go out and he wouldn't just plant one crop in his field, for instance, like barley, but he'll add to that, he'll add peas and canola and, and uh, maybe wheat and plant several species together. And what that's doing, that's creating these synergies, feeding soil biology, cycling more carbon from the atmosphere into the soil, and it's increasing the profitability for the farmer. You know, people always ask, and one of the questions we always ask get asked is, well, you can't feed the world with regenerative <laughs> agriculture. And I just laugh because I say, okay, let's think about it. It's the only option. It's the only pragmatic option. Well, first of all, the, the figures I had from the World Food Bank in 2017, we produced enough feed to feed well over 10 billion people. So mm -hmm. we're already producing enough feed. The pro the, the food, excuse me, the problem is it's not nutrient-dense healthy food mm -hmm. and we're not getting it distributed. 
And then you look at how regenerative farms stack production models. They're not just producing a monoculture of corn or soybeans. They're producing those crops, but then also all the livestock and fruit and vegetables and poultry and many different species. So they're producing many more calories and it's nutrient dense calories per acre. It's not this blank carbohydrates that we're producing now. Yeah, yeah. So I think there's exciting things coming up. I think it's going to grow very quickly and it can't happen soon enough in my book. <laughs> yeah. So I, let me just make a few comments on that. Uh, first on exponential growth and at the very beginning of exponential growth, you cannot notice a difference. It's just imperceptible for the yep. first I don't know, five, six, seven doublings, but after a while, it becomes impressive. We're, it's, it's pretty similar to the solar industry. You're actually increasing at a faster rate than the solar industry, which is another encouraging move. But this is this has been one of the most uh, inspiring and exciting interviews because it it shows positive hope that we are making a change. And really, want to emphasize here that everyone everyone watching this is that you you specifically can be part of that change. And no, you don't have to go out and integrate regenerative agricultural principles. It's great if you do, but you don't have to. All you need to do is vote with your dollars. And that is the most powerful influence that big industry, that federal regulatory agencies, they have no way to regulate or control. They can't control the way you spend your dollars. So they, they try to, but they can't. So you can, can you can accelerate this change. So it's a, it's a very empowering message that you're providing. So I'm wondering for those, you know, to continue this uh, exponential growth and even accelerate it even a bit faster, if those people watching would like more information or know some farmers or their, their you know, the farmers at their farmer's market to, to learn and understand this better, how would they uh, get this information? Yeah. And, and I, I aside from your book, Dirt yeah. dirt to Soil. <laughs> I agree. Well, I agree with what you just said. And what I would really like is I would like people all over the world to start supporting local. Buy mm -hmm. local. Get to know your farmer or rancher. Now, all you have to do if you want to find out more, if you have access to the Internet, just Google soil health. It's as simple as that. And, and our group is Soil Health Consultants. We'll be, we'll be launching a new website of which there will be uh, a lot of information on, on regenerative agriculture. So you can go to SoilHealthConsultants.com or Google Soil Health and we'll show up there. There's many, many video YouTube videos on regenerative agriculture principles. And most importantly, there's people doing using mm -hmm. these practices in every country all over the world. So seek them out. And then, as you said, vote with your buying dollar. Yeah. And then you can catalyze, continue to catalyze this change and not only impact you and your future generations, but also the planet. I mean, the planet needs us is probably even more than we yeah. do. And yeah. it, you know, it's just it's it really is is a tragic crime on what humanity has done to the planet through the ignorance of these these types of principles. I mean, to have have millions of tons, a billions of tons of topsoil lost every year is inexcusable. It's just inexcusable. Yeah, one of the things we like to teach people is that this has multiple ramifications. I mean. We will take carbon out of the atmosphere using regenerative ag principles. We will hold nutrients on the farms and ranches instead of having them look at the dead zone in the Gulf and look at the problems with the drinking water in the Great Lakes, the problems, the lack of shortage of water in the southwestern United States. So we can heal the water cycle. We can heal the nutrient cycle. We're going to produce more nutrient-dense food. We're going to have a healthier society because of this. So this has ramifications across many fronts. It, it, we're not talking about simply uh, uh, farmers and ranchers and gardeners here. We're talking about all society. Absolutely. So um, I think we've done a pretty good job of covering the book and the important principles, but is there anything else you'd like to add before you leave? Well, I, I just encourage people to take it upon themselves. I, I end my book with a chapter uh, uh, about a story about a lady in the inner city who called me, what can she do to, to produce healthy nutrient dense food 
for the children in the inner city. And I challenge the readers uh, who are reading my book, do something. Just do something. If you're a consumer, vote with your buying dollar. If you're a farmer, a rancher, or a gardener, do something in the practices you use to produce nutrient-dense food. But all of us can make a difference. Yes, indeed. And, uh, you know, just emphasize the point again, that, that is true from the regenerative uh, agricultural farmers to the consumers, you the consumers, and probably you as a consumer have even more powerful influence because you're collectively far outnumber them and can force the big companies, the big players that Gabe is not disclosing who are, who's consulting with him. But this is a and beyond exciting change because that's where the change needs to occur. Yes, we need these local farmers, but we need to change it at the at the, at the top levels. And it's it's so exciting to hear this is happening. That's right. All right. Well, you keep up the great work. You're one of the main leaders in the world in this, and you're doing a magnificent job. It's going to be quite a legacy that you're leaving behind. Wow, to been a, to have been a major catalyst in the transition back to healthy regenerative agricultural principles. I mean, that's just incredible. Well, it's not me. It's all of us together. And, and I thank you for the work you're doing. It's been a real pleasure being interviewed by you. And it was a great pleasure hosting you on our ranch. Yeah, that was good. All right. Well, the book again is Dirt to Soil, and it's available on Amazon. So uh, pick up a copy if you have any interest in this. And I think you'll, uh, you know, obviously Gabe elaborates in much more in detail on the, some of the points we discussed in the interview. So thank you for uh, what you're doing.